we were able to produce a bit out of the rock. So I guess good for us. We were the first humans to actually produce oil out of a, out of a rock that had never produced oil. But Andrew, it was an absolute commercial zero. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I want to thank our listeners in Oklahoma today for joining and also, I just want to highlight that at the end of 2023, I sat down and went through my more than 150 episodes that I did last year. And I picked out, it was this was a hard task, but I picked out the 27 top podcasts based upon download numbers and, you know, what I thought were interesting conversation and diverse views. And that's all available. I've got that curated list available for free for anybody that wants to go to the website, myworstinvestmentever.com. Just click on the link. I've set it up as like a videos. So you can watch the videos. You could go through them quickly, go through them slowly, skip one, go to the next, whatever. But I think it's a, it's a great way to, uh, to learn as much as we can. So fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Nathaniel Harding. Nathaniel, are you ready to join the mission? I'm ready, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited to get you on and learn about what you're doing and also, you know, what you've learned and, and get you to share that with us. So let me introduce you to the audience. A born and bred Oklahoman, Nathaniel is an innovator and market maker who has founded, scaled, and sold companies. He is a successful investor in energy, biotech, and ag tech. Nathaniel was named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum and most admired CEO in Oklahoma by the journal record. Nathaniel, take a minute and tell us about the unique value you are bringing to this wonderful world. Yeah, happy to discuss it. So my partners and I started Cortado Ventures about three and a half years ago, we are early stage technology investors focused on the mid-continent of the U.S. That's an area that we think has been overlooked by coastal venture capital. We invest in and overlooked or underrated entrepreneurs that are building amazing technologies and companies in really important sectors like energy and logistics. It may not look sexy, but they're doing things. These, these entrepreneurs are building really powerful solutions that impact our modern life. And that's where we invest at the earliest stages. Mm. Yeah. And for those people who haven't, like I grew up in Ohio, so it's a little bit kind of Midwest. And then, you know, obviously Oklahoma is a little bit further West and I've driven through Oklahoma and driven through many of the Western states. But when you think about kind of middle America, I guess someone on the coast will go, well, why, why does it matter? I mean, I can do anything from New York or, or LA that, you know, can take advantage of these guys that are coming up with new ideas in the Midwest or across the U.S. What is it that you think you're bringing to them that maybe they're not getting from the coastal, you know, investors? Yeah, you know, we, we believe, and, and I think it's supported actually by a lot of really interesting studies that at the earliest stages of a company's formation, Proximity matters. And so think of this, you know, a lot of times we're investing in a company that's not on pitch book yet. It's not, it's not in the databases. You're not going to find information about this company. It might not even be a company yet. 
So how do you find these companies? A lot of times it's just your actual personal network. Mm. And it's just kind of good old fashioned, like going to things and meeting people in real life. That's actually really important in early stage investing. But also the early stages of a company's formation is a high touch proposition. You know, they're just trying to figure out what is the go-to-market strategy. They're iterating on a product or an idea. And, you know, truly being to where you're physically close, where you can be available as an advisor, as somebody who's helping the companies grow, that's important. And then lastly, when somebody's building a new product, I always say that the CEO needs to focus on those first 10 customers and making Mm -hmm. them wildly happy and solving their problems. Well, that's also a high-touch situation. And so you want to be available to that customer. You want to be responsive. You want to be showing up at the office. And so we, as investors, a lot of times help connect the startups with the customer base. And that's another, a whole other layer why that proximity matters. Because we can actually make connections, and we've done so many, many times, where we'll help introduce these startups to kind of their first, first 10 customers. It's up to them to, to land the customer. It's up to them to make them happy. But we can make that connection. So it's all it's still a very like, personal kind of value proposition that we could bring our network. Mm. And what are some of the different ideas that have either been pitched to you or that you've invested in or you've seen that you think, wow, that was pretty, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, our business is pretty fun because, you know, we hear ideas that are amazing and awesome, but also crazy. And there's actually like a Venn diagram of, there's a lot of overlap of crazy and awesome. You know, so I'll brag on a couple of our companies. One is a company called NewView. And they use LiDAR on satellites. LiDAR is the technology that self-driving cars use to figure out where they are and what's in front of them. Well, our company, NewView, is using LiDAR on satellites to create a high-fidelity 3D image of any surface on Earth. That has application in energy infrastructure. So they give like monitoring pipelines and power lines. But it has application in agriculture. So think of monitoring crops. So it's an amazing company founded by somebody from Oklahoma originally, and then they actually landed an investment from the actor Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, but we were an early investor in this company. And it's a good example of what I talk about digital tech meets real world. You know, you're seeing LiDAR, digital technology, being married and being used in the ultimate real world, like the entire world, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the, the entire surface of the earth. And then one more example a company that we're actually looking at, but I think is also helps embody the kind of things that we look at, is a common byproduct in you know, manufacturing and refinery and, and gas plants is H2S, hydrogen sulfide, which is a deadly gas. But so right now, it's just a, it's a nuisance, it's very dangerous, it's expensive. This company has a novel technology that together with other waste byproducts like carbon dioxide can actually turn that into hydrogen, which is valuable, solid sulfur, which is valuable in different petrochemical production processes, and water. And so, you know, they're using this novel technology. They're the first to do it. So again, things that are really hard to do, you don't just kind of come up with these on your couch. You come up with these, you know, ideas because you've been in the industry, you come from industry, and you're selling to these really big customers, large enterprise markets, and solving really important problems in the world. One other question I have is like, what's going on on the ground around there? I know we see in America that oil and gas output has been, you know, very strong, which I think people didn't necessarily expect was going to be happening during the Biden administration. And so now we see it cranking up. Are you seeing that 
on the ground or is that just in the numbers and it's not as clearly coming across? Yeah, the many years ago, well, I should say like 2010 timeframe, there was something called the shale revolution, which may be familiar to some and certainly familiar to people in, in this part of the country. That's referring to a type of rock, shale, which is very lax porosity, but using technologies like hydraulic fracturing, figured out how to produce it at scale. And that really launched the U.S. into being a top producer. But we also kind of overdid it. You know, there's a bit of a correction, even before COVID, there's a correction in, in the oil and gas market domestically, where we kind of realized that the inventory, or at least the amount of production per well, wasn't as economic, or at least there was a limit to the kind of grow at all costs which maybe sound like a familiar story in startup land. You know, there's the grow at all costs when things are good, but then some sanity returns. So there has been a, a correction in the U.S. market and production, but yeah, you're, up, you're right. We're actually seeing us resume new records of production and resuming our place in the global market. But it's driven by an onshore, you know, continental U.S. production. Actually, in a lot of these areas, in fact, we call ourselves at Portado Ventures mid-continent focus, mid-continent investors. That term mid-continent is actually a term that we borrow from the oil and gas industry. The mid-continent region has historically been one of the most prolific regions in the U.S. And it's actually the home of that, the beginning of that shale revolution. And with the shale revolution, is it gas that's being extracted or oil and gas? Both. It started with gas. Gas is easier to move because it's smaller molecules. But it's expanded. So now the Permian Basin is probably the king of basins in the lower 48. And that's in, in West Texas. And that's actually mostly oil, even though it's you know shale and other type stones as well. Well, that's a, a great briefing on what you're doing and a little update from Middle America. So I appreciate that, given that I haven't been back there in a long, long time. And I certainly haven't been back to Oklahoma besides a couple times driving through. So yeah. hopefully I'll- Well, I'll come on by. We'll, we'll hook you up next time you're around. That sounds like fun. In fact, I'd love to go see what's going on on the ground, you know, in the oil and gas space, because it's just, it's fascinating. But well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the- circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure. So this was back in my oil and gas days, which really defined my career from graduating college until 2019, 2020. And where we developed a good capability as a company was finding new areas, evaluating new areas of potential. And I'm talking about like new oil and gas fields, areas that we believed were underdeveloped or not developed at all and that we could find new layers of potential. You got to remember like in oil and gas, there's multiple strata of earth and you can evaluate those strata to see which might be the most productive. So as a company, we developed a competence in using analytical methods, using high science to evaluate potential areas and then to deploy the infrastructure and equipment and personnel to prove it and develop it. And we would do that, you know, increase production throughout an area, prove the viability of a new area, and then sell that to kind of a bigger established oil and gas company. So that was the formula. And so, you know, going back now, this would have been, this would have been 10 years ago now. You know, we had kind of come off of a recent success where we did a similar model, where we, we grew an area, we grew up production by tenfold. We were able to have a, a great exit, a great sale. That was a good outcome for us and our investors. So, 
10 years ago, we were like, okay, we're going to do this again. You know, we're, we're hot stuff. We can do this anywhere. We have the Midas touch. And we were working with some very well-established, accomplished you know, geologists and geoscientists and decided to kind of take that model outside of our home state of Oklahoma. In fact, went about as far north as you can in, in the U.S., went up to Michigan to find a new area. And we spent several months and used some of the same techniques to kind of evaluate where you look at data from nearby wells or you look at different like geological reports, field reports, you know, observations from the surface or from mining operations to kind of infer what you think the potential is. So we saw an opportunity to do something that nobody had done, which is to produce oil out of a shale formation that had to date only produced natural gas, and but in a different part of the state. And so that was really kind of the setting the stage as far as, you know, what, where we had come from and then what kind of our next, you know, mission is. And so we had to find an investor, you know, because these things are expensive. That's the thing about the oil and gas business. You can literally spend a million dollars a day developing one well. And that's, that's, that's no exaggeration. And you also have to acquire the acreage or lease the acreage. You have to actually get rights to the land. So there's actually a big upfront cost as well. Mm. We're kind of painting a picture of we have to establish a new company to operate a new area. You know, we have to have upfront capital to be able to lease the acreage. And you have to go through a lot of kind of regulatory steps to have the right to operate in a new environment. Unfamiliar to us, Okies, that's kind of the slang for an Oklahoman is the Okie. So unfamiliar to territory to us, but we set up shop in Michigan. And let me tell you, the winters there, you know, absolutely brutal. I remember, you know, when you develop a new oil and gas well, it's a 24-hour operation. Mm. And so I remember being out there and it's like 2 a.m., negative 20 degrees, all the layers I had on, everything I, you know, our equipment was freezing. And then when that happens, you bring out like a steam truck, like basically this large truck that literally produces steam and just blasts whatever's frozen. Well, the steam truck froze. <laughs> and then you also have like a hot oiler, basically everything in the oil field is like, has a very obvious name. So a hot oil truck, well, guess what it carries? It carries hot oil. Well, that froze. And so, you know, dealing with this and like, man, but when we develop this billion dollar field, it's going to all be worth it. Mm. You keep, keep telling yourself that. We actually use a very novel technology. So some listeners may be aware of hydraulic fracturing or fracking. So we're using typically water, water mixed with different things to open up the rock so it can produce. We were using, we were early pioneers or early adopters, you know, of basically a waterless system, a system that actually is based on hydrocarbons. So even that was a very novel approach. You know, we're in, we're in a new area in a new state doing something no human's ever done. Again, producing oil out of this formation and using a technique that's very novel. But the prize was so, so large. You know, obviously I wouldn't be telling the story if it had a great outcome. Mm. Ended up having, it was an absolute commercial zero. You know, we were out there, like the whole process of bringing online a new well, man, when it, when it works out, it's like the ultimate rush. They always come online like in the middle of the night. And the picture you have in your head of like the movies where it's like, the gusher goes out into the sky. Like that doesn't happen, but the emotional rush happens because you're not allowed to spew oil and gas into the sky. That doesn't happen anymore. But, you know, that moment, that exhilaration of that discovery, 
is so worth it. But then the abject failure and the dejection when it doesn't work. And that's what we had. You know, we, we were able to produce a bit out of the rock. So I guess good for us. We were the first humans to actually produce oil out of a, out of a rock that had never produced oil. But Andrew, it was an absolute commercial zero. That's, yeah. And when was the day that you guys or yourself realized that? Like, can you recall the day that was like, uh, we got to give this up? Yeah. And unfortunately, it's kind of a death by a thousand cuts because it's not like, well, let's give it one day and see if it works. I mean, you have to, if it comes online and it's producing a lot, then that's, that's great and mm. going. But if not, then, well, maybe there's something we can do to fix it. And you could also say, well, we maybe need to drill in a different area. So then we went out and did this two more times. You know, so we had that first well and then gave it a kind of a month or two, did another and then did another. And, you know, you change different things, just like you do kind of the, whenever you're experimenting, you need to change one or two variables to see if that makes a difference, see how it responds. You know, so this is now over the course of several months. I'd say from when we first decided we're going to go do that until we said we need out. Well, it was probably 18 months. Mm. And then it took another six months to actually get out. You know, you have to just magically disappear. You have to do something with those assets. You got to turn them over to some other operator or plug them. So when, you have, when you're done with an oil well, you literally plug it with cement according to regulatory guidelines. So yeah, from beginning to end total, it was about two years. Mm. And how would you describe the lessons that you learned from this? Yeah, I would say there's definitely two sides to it. I'm going to definitely say the things that we should have factored in, but I'm also going to give it another spin to kind of say like, well, would we do it again? What would we do different? We definitely layered on a lot of layers of uncertainty. Operating in a new state, operating with a new team, doing something nobody's ever done before and using a new technology. I mean, that's a lot of firsts, you know? So I think one thing was absolutely that there's such thing as too many firsts. Once you kind of stack that house of cards up high enough, it's going to fall. And so now, how do I use that now? I mean, now I'm a venture capital investor and we categorize risk, give everything a name. And you have team risk of execution, you know, market and technology risk. And we, you know, typically now, I partly informed by that, we'll limit it to our investments to one risk. Because that's where that's where alpha's created, right? If all the risks have been answered, if there's zero risk left, well, then it's been priced in and you're too late. But as an early stage investor, you gotta pick one of those. Mm. But four, maybe uh that's a bit too far. Maybe that's uh I'll just share my my thinking on it. I, I was thinking when you were just saying that was like we say, one day at a time, like one risk at a time. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of that's like, the absolute way to put it. You know, the idea being that, yeah, it just it just made me think. Like I'm going to the website of Exxon Mobil right now, and as an analyst all my life, I want to go and see their, you know, their documents where they list out all their risks. You know, it's just so it's always fascinating to read through that. And that's a legal document that's trying to say, hey, hey, we told you everything. Right. But yeah. it's also a great place to see, you know, to get a list of all those risks. So I'm going to do that. And I'm going to, I'm going to share that with my students in my evaluation masterclass bootcamp on Friday when I, when I meet them and talk about this, because it is an important thing that 
analysts often miss and investors miss is understanding the risks. And I think in this case, it's one risk at a time, or the idea is isolate your risk. In one of my businesses, we were looking at investing in Vietnam from Thailand, and we did a lot of work on it. And at the end, we decided not to do it because we felt like we could deploy that capital in Thailand and get same amount of growth at a good profit margin without a new country, without a new language, without a new team, without a new legal system we were dealing with. You know, it's like, those are massive risks that we were just like, ain't gonna do it. So it just really highlights about that. Absolutely. And we also even look at, you know, now as investors, we look at what we'll call an existential threat. So maybe there is just one risk, but maybe it's just binary and uncontrollable. And it's either it's going to work or it's going to be an absolute zero. Sometimes that can still be okay if it's priced in, you mm. know, but my examples would be, you know, if, if a company has one customer and it's the federal government, well, then if there's a law change or, you know, then, then all of a sudden you go from a giant customer to zero. Biotech has that kind of risk where it's mm. either going to clear the FDA or it's not. But I will say this, something that I think we actually did right and that I can extrapolate as an enduring lesson is, you know, we, we had to, as I mentioned, it's a very capital intensive business. And what we did was very capital intensive in that earlier example. And so we had to raise capital and we lost it all. But I'll tell you that that actually wasn't as bad as it sounds. Here's why. In the oil and gas business, when you drill a well, you can deduct the capital costs of drilling. And so there's something to be said for finding the right investor with the right needs for the right application. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you have an investor who has a lot of taxable income. And it's either, if you don't decide by December 31st, then it's either going to be a tax liability or you can do something with that. And instead, in this case, invest in something that has a lot of these intangible drilling costs is the technical term, IDC. So it's reduced the tax bill significantly. Otherwise, it would have been just a loss or a liability, I should say. And it gave the potential of great returns. Now that that the returns ended up being zero, but it still wasn't like a total loss in terms of the after-tax effect of this investor. Mm-hmm. So you know, I can kind of speak to this investor and say that in their mind, it's like, actually, it wasn't all that bad, you know, because I got something out of it. And for all of us, if it had worked, it would have been absolutely monster. I mean, it, it would have been just life-changing for everybody. And so I kind of asked myself, like, would I do something like that again? You know, I would like to think that I would try to maybe do one risk at a time, as you're talking about, and do it sequentially. But as far as like even embarking on something like that, you know, if you can align interests with investors and then give yourself an opportunity for that kind of outcome, then yeah, I think it's worth it, but you need to take it one step at a time. Well, one more thing to that is if you spend all of your career doing stuff like that, there's a lot of opportunity costs there, Mm -hmm. you know? So swinging for the fences on everything, you can end up taking, eating up your career and these kind of opportunity costs that didn't then shake out. So I'm not out there saying you should always do that approach, but, but if you do take kind of one risk at a time, you'll get that feedback before you've gone too deep, either financially or opportunity cost and can react to that information. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you've continued to learn, let's go back in time either for yourself or for another person. 
you know, in a similar type of situation, it doesn't have to be the exact same, but what's one action that you would recommend that our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I would say embarking on something that has a lot of firsts or a lot of kind of new experiences for you, it really helps to partner with somebody who does know the territory, whatever that is, right? I mean, yeah. in my example, I could have pointed to a few things, but I could have actually reduced how many firsts we were doing, but also partnering with somebody who does know how to, in this example, operate in that area. Mm. Or, you know, hold off on that new technology until you can answer another question in your list of risks. So that's something that I, I think I would tell anybody who's kind of embarking on something that mm. a lot of risks. And, you know, when you're starting a new company, uh, you know, develop new technology, you do have a lot of those. And the example that we talk about in, our, in startups, when we invest in tech startups, is get feedback from that first customer. And, and again, like make your first customer, first 10 customers wildly happy, because that's going to do a lot to answering the question of execution risk and scale mm -hmm. risk. And so I like your way of kind of putting it one risk at a time. So as we wrap up, what's a resource that you found valuable in your life or any other resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? Yeah, I actually get a lot of my inspiration from travel. And it can be anything, right? But I find that taking myself kind of out of the the daily grind, of course, time off is wonderful. But for me, at least I need to be somewhere else. And it kind of gets me out of just, you know, thinking about the daily grind and actually much more kind of aspirational thoughts and longer term. And I can absolutely point to several examples in my own personal life where I've had kind of career breakthroughs that came to me when traveling. And I think it kind of shows you how big the world is. And so like, as humans, we're all prone to the comparison, being bedeviled by comparing ourselves to our peers. Well, when you travel and take yourself out of that environment, all of a sudden it kind of resets what you're really after. And instead of comparing yourself to others, you compare yourself to the best version of what you want for yourself. And you can think more aspirationally and creatively. Great, great advice. And I know I love traveling. I used to travel quite a bit and I love to travel around the world and around Asia in particular, but you just see things from a different angle. And also it's just, you know, getting out of the daily grind, you sit down and you're thinking, you know, you're thinking bigger picture. So I, I think that's a great, great advice. All right. Last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? We recently raised our fund two. We raised $80 million for fund two. Our goal is to deploy that capital into the top startups in the region and to be a top decile fund. It's absolutely our mission and our goal is to be a top decile performer and to really define this kind of market for the mid-continent. And that's some specific things to it. We actually are hosting the next you know, mid-continent venture capital summit. We had our first inaugural one last year. It was a huge success. So I guess I can put a plug out there to say May 7th and 8th, Bentonville, Arkansas, some really amazing speakers and thinkers and builders and backers that are going to be talking about the trends in tech and venture capital. But it's all part of our goal, you know, in the next you know, year and beyond to be really defining kind of this new market of this third wave of venture capital that we're seeing in the mid-continent. Well, I have links in the show notes to you and, you know, the resources that you have. And so for anybody that's interested, 
Get out there and check it out. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of a loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And as we conclude, Nathaniel, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A.E. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Never stop learning, never stop growing. You know, uh, you learn more from failure. Beautiful. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.